You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking with Michael Punk, who's joining us via Zoom from Flathead Lake. We're excited to talk with Michael about his new book called Ridgeline. But before we introduce Michael, Crystal, I want to catch up with you. How was your week? What's going on? It was a good week. It was a busy week as usual, but um, we got some good news yesterday that uh, Juneteenth was passed Yay, and signed into law. That is Woo-hoo. huge. Yeah, it was huge. It huge. Was huge. I did not learn about Juneteenth when I was in high school. I don't know about you. I did not either. Yeah. No, now no. we've been hearing about it for a while, but that's a um, wonderful thing to celebrate, the end yeah. of slavery. Yeah. Right. right. So we, um, we, of course, here at Extreme History have been celebrating Juneteenth for the past few years. But like you said, Nancy, you know, it's not something that we, of course, learned about in our in our middle school or high school classes, but from now on, hopefully, students will. So yeah. so that was really good. So that was you know a highlight of the of my week for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's no way once something's a federal holiday, you know, you have to understand something about how it became that way, mm-hmm. and so it is. It's just going to be so much better understood and. Hopefully there'll be a lot more around it. Will Extreme History start doing some programming, some more mm-hmm. programming around it? Yeah, so last year we did uh, free walking tours around Juneteenth. And so we, yeah, we definitely do programming around it. And we'll definitely continue to do that in the future. Nice. Yeah, so it's June 19th is the So tomorrow. The day. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. Know. tomorrow we're, we'll, um, we'll be celebrating it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So what what about you, Nancy? What's happening in your world this week? Oh, it has been a really crazy week. Yeah, my husband made it back from Colombia and Ecuador, and uh, that was a relief. We've got some guests visiting, and luckily the weather is phenomenal. So we had our first tubing float down the Madison River, which is, you know, always Always something. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the wonderful thing for locals too, because we all have our own tubes and we shuttle ourselves and, and it was a pretty um, magical morning for that Mm, uh, this morning. So yeah. And we have just um, um, an incredible amount of uh, new energy down at my shop um, with some new employees and the tourists are all out in force, yeah. which is exciting. We are sold out of our first round of Yellowstoner t-shirts, oh, nice. which is fun. So more will be Good. coming in. But yeah, so that is all um, wonderful. I think Bozeman feels very um, alive and well and mm-hmm. exciting and, and things like that. And um, we will have only another podcast or two before mm-hmm. we start our hiatus. Mm-hmm. And I'll be in Italy for that. It turns out we are able to get into the country on a COVID-tested mm. flight. So, good, good, so good. The, yes, the, um, the trip will go on. 
Great. So we'll see. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah. that's wonderful. Well, good. Good, good. Right. So we should probably get back to our guest and introduce him. Okay. We've so. left you alone long enough, Michael. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's okay. I'm not, I'm not offended. Welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. And, Thanks very much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. And we, um, we've both met you uh, before and um, seen you give talks about previous books. And we're, we've both read Ridgeline and we're so excited about it. And actually, we listened to it, and the, the narration is really beautiful. We'll be asking you some cool. questions about sure. that. Yeah. But I want to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. So Michael Punk is the author of several books, including The Revenant, which many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. It was a number one New York Times bestseller and the basis for the Academy Award-winning film. I think it went on to win three Oscars, the first Best Actor Award for Leo DiCaprio, who I'm sure must be owing you a debt of gratitude. You got to really pull that string. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I won't pretend like Leo and I are exactly uh, best but oh, uh, I did have a fun conversation with him one time about the buffalo, which I'll tell you about later on. Okay, good. Okay, good. Um, in his diverse professional career, Michael Punk has served as the U.S. ambassador to the World Trade Organization in Geneva, a history correspondent for the Montana Quarterly, and an adjunct professor at the University of Montana. He is currently the vice president of public policy for Amazon Web Services. As a high school and college student, he worked summers as a living history interpreter in Fort Laramie National Historic Site in Wyoming. And he currently lives with his family in Montana and is an avid outdoorsman. So again, welcome Michael Punk to the show. Thank you very much. Super excited to be here. Great, great. Well, Michael, as Nancy mentioned, uh, writing novels is not your day job, but it obviously is your passion. So what brought you to history and writing novels about the historic West? Well, I grew up in Wyoming, and my parents uh, are both retired teachers, and uh, of course, we're teaching the whole time that I was growing up. My my dad was a high school biology teacher when I was a boy, and he's a very avid hunter and fisherman and outdoorsman, and so he really taught me a lot about the kind of the natural side of of the West. My mom is taught elementary school. She's the probably the biggest reader in the family, and is a is a big uh, history fan herself. So uh, I kind of was very lucky with my DNA. I had good kind of Western outdoors person on one side, and a good Western historian on the other, and just kind of grew up uh, loving it. That sounds like an ideal combination. You know, you're out experiencing the West, but then to understand how amazing the history is by being sort of exposed to it that way um, seems like a good recipe to produce a writer such as yourself. So we want to discuss your newest book, Ridgeline. um, But before we do that, we're just going to ask if you could give a synopsis for our listeners. Sure. Well, Ridgeline is historical fiction, but it's based on a a very real incident that took place in Wyoming in the Powder River Valley. Uh, it, 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 the focal point in the last third or so of the book is a huge battle that was fought on December 21st, 1866, between combined forces of the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes on the one hand, and the U.S. Army on the other. And 
it's one of those things I think that after you learn about it, you kind of can't believe you you hadn't heard of it before. It's a it's a battle called the Fetterman fight, and up until the the Custer fight, the Battle of Little Bighorn, in ten years later, it was one of the most infamous battles in U.S. history. But it sort of was overshadowed ultimately by the by the Battle of Little Bighorn. But the book is about the battle, and even more significantly, in some ways, the four or five months that lead up to the battle where the U.S. Army very much invades the Powder River Valley in violation of a uh, of explicit treaty rights that have been given to the to the tribes. So that's kind of the the lead up to the uh, to the finale. From a from a historian standpoint, I felt incredibly lucky because the 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 real life historical cast of this story is so amazing on the on the Lakota side, there's uh, Sitting Bull, who in many ways I think is the most significant protagonist in the book. Uh, Red Cloud is uh, features very prominently in the story. Uh, on the U.S. Army side, there are there's a, a cast of, of Army officers who I think play a lot of, of very interesting roles. There are some great female characters. And for anybody who read The Revenant, I was amazed and happy to discover that Jim Bridger Mm. who in The Revenant was a 19-year-old boy back in 1823. In Ridgeline, he shows up as a scout for the U.S. Army in real life, 40 years later as a 62-year-old Army scout. So it just had all of the elements, both on the adventure side and in terms of the characters that I thought made for the, the great, uh, a great foundation for a book. And such an important story. And you're right. I, I think we hear all about Custer and there's all these things named for him. And and this is not something that's necessarily nearly as widely known, mm-hmm. but what a profound story. Yeah. Yeah. So, Michael, can you take us a little bit back in time, a little bit further um, to talk about some of the events that happened that kind of led up to this? Uh, you, you talked sure. a little bit about those those few months in before, but let's go back a few years before and, and sure. maybe talk about some of that. Well, uh, I love, I, I'm assuming given the, the focus of your podcast that your your listeners don't mind a little bit of, of historical context. So I'll take advantage of that until you tell me to stop. Okay. Um, All right. All right. <laughs> love it. Yeah. I can go back like set the stage a little bit here uh, because I'm really interested in these kind of pivot points in history. And I think there was a, there was an unbelievable three-year period that where the floodgates on westward migration just really opened up. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it. Uh, so uh, I hope I'm getting my years right, given your audience. But in 1846, uh, the U.S. and the United Kingdom settled the uh, dispute over the Oregon Territory and the the it, Oregon becomes a part of the United States, which of course ultimately led to the the migration towards Oregon along the Oregon Trail. In 1847, Brigham Young uh, establishes uh, Salt Lake City, which began the Mormon migration to Salt Lake City, and then in 1848, the U.S. and Mexico settled uh, the Mexican American War. And the U.S. gets California two weeks after that treaty is signed. Gold is discovered at Sutter's Mill in California. And, of course, the 49ers with a gold rush to California uh, begin. So in that three-year period, 
there's this incredible opening of the floodgates in terms of westward uh, expansion. What the U.S. Army did in reaction to that is they wanted to establish a travel corridor across the middle part of the country, basically to protect the Oregon Trail. And so to do that in 1851, they set up, they established a treaty with the various tribes. And in exchange for that travel corridor along the Oregon Trail, they essentially gave the tribes most of what was, was north of the Platte River. And so that's 1851. Uh, what's happened by 1866, the year that I write about, is the easy kind of placer gold in California runs out. And a lot of those gold miners who've gone out to California looking for California gold start coming back towards the middle part of the continent that they kind of rushed past on their way to California. And they start finding gold in places like Nevada, uh, Colorado, and in the early 1860s in Montana. And that Montana gold rush is what led lots of people to start peeling off of the Oregon Trail and going north. And when they did that, they started going through this Lakota land, land that had been given to Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho by this 1851 treaty. And, and we basically just started violating the treaty in 1866, in the summer before the events in my book, the U.S. Army imposes a new treaty on the tribes and basically takes the Powder River Valley. Um, they signed a treaty with a bunch of tribes, most of which didn't live in the Powder River Valley. The tribes that actually did live in the Powder River Valley rejected the notion of a treaty and war breaks out. And that's popularly known as Red Cloud's War because Red Cloud uh, is sort of the, in some ways, was the most prominent of the Lakota chiefs, but also because uh, uh, I think on the U.S. side, they just wanted to kind of assign uh, one right. one uh, named chief as as a protagonist, and that's what they did. Um, so anyway, that's that's the war that breaks out uh, right in the in the in the beginning of of my book. That's a really good summation of what was happening. And then, of course, also, in addition to that, was the Civil War raging back east and in, in, right in those, those same years. Right. And, of course, at the end of the Civil War, there was a, a, a massive demobilization of, of both the Union and Southern armies. And so you had a large number of, of unemployed uh, men in the, on the East Coast who were looking for new opportunities. And of course the West beckoned in all sorts of different ways. And so in addition to the things that I talked about before with Oregon, California, and Utah, you had a huge new uh, impetus for people to go, to go West. Right, right. And those people coming West to just fought in a war, probably suffering some PTSD and some other, other other things coming into a situation where um, both people who fought for the Union and for the Confederacy are coming together in these situations as well. So an interesting time. An interesting moment, including, and this is something people don't think about a lot, but the Frontier Army right after the Civil War was made up of both Union and Confederate veterans. And so literally in 1866, a year earlier, some of these, these men in the Army together might have been fighting against each other, right. you know, 18 months earlier. Yeah. And you can imagine the tension that that created within the ranks. 
The army didn't pay very well. There was a gold rush uh, a couple hundred miles away. It was it was a tough time to try and hold together, uh, a, you know, a, a, an army. And and those tensions are very much alive in the in the story that I tell on the on the U.S. Army side. Right, right, right. right. Well, right. that gives us some background that gives us some context for this. So I want to just dive into some of these characters, Michael, because they're great. The characters that you include in this book. Well, um, I'm glad you think so. I, yeah. I love them. But yeah. uh, uh, I'm glad you're having that same reaction. You've probably got to know them pretty well at this point. So <laughs> very well, very well. So this this story that you tell is from the perspective of a handful of people, including Crazy Horse, which a young at that time, a young Lakota man. Um, and, and I love, Michael, in your book, how you kind of put in the ages of everybody. Um, because, of course, you know, when we see pictures of like <clears throat> Jim Bridger, mm-hmm. he's old and grizzled. And, you know, you don't think. It, and of course, in this right. in this story, I guess he is old and grizzled. But, <laughs> but he, t- he talks yeah. about his his youth, which is so yeah, fun to, yeah. to know all that part. And James Beckworth, I, it, he's just such an amazing character. This He's a great character, too. This yeah. African-American that's out there has been out there forever living with the crow, you know, just yep. was like got away from slavery. And he has this whole fascinating life out here as a black man who's really, and I love the discussion they have about religion. So, okay, I'm going off. You back to your question. Sorry. (laughs) I just, yeah, no, it's fun because they really come alive in this book. Yeah, yeah, they do. But um, you talk about Crazy Horse. And of course, at this time, Crazy Horse was young. Um, You know, he was a a young man. So you also talk about Frances Grummond, who was the wife of Lieutenant Grummond. Um, Adolf Metzger, who was the bugler in the band, which of course they had right. a whole band at at Fort Phil Kearney, which is kind <laughs> Somewhat of hard, incredibly hard yeah. to imagine, but true. And then of course Jim Bridger, like we talked about. So you know, why did you um, pick these individuals, and, and also James Beckworth, another great um, uh, yeah. character? So why did you pick these folks to talk about? Well, there was a wealth of choices in terms of real life characters. And I love real life characters because I, even though it's a a fictionalized story, just because I think it makes those people that much more interesting to think that they really existed. And in the case of the people that I'm writing about, I've tried to not fictionalize them very much at all. And in fact, I don't have to because their stories are so compelling. But, um, But I think one of the big contrasts between The Revenant and Ridgeline is The Revenant, for people who read it or saw the movie, is really a one-man show in a lot of ways. It's about this one guy who's mauled by a grizzly bear, abandoned and betrayed by his friends, goes out to seek revenge and survive. Um, there's there's a broader cast than just Hugh Glass, the, the, the wounded mountain man, but it really is a one-man show. This story, Ridgeline, has a sprawling cast. And it was really a challenge to decide who to write about and who not to write about. But one of the things that was so fascinating to me, and, and one of the aspects of the story of the American West that I think is not often told very well, is just how diverse the West was. Very, and, yeah. you know, just this story, uh, you know, there are, there are four different tribes that are an important part of this story. The uh, you know, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho and the Crow uh, with just within the Lakota. There are uh, uh, subgroups of the Minicauju and the Oglala within the Cheyenne. There's the Northern Cheyenne and the Southern Cheyenne. The Lakota 
our historical enemies of the crow, uh, that's all just on the, the indigenous side. Then on the U.S. side, as you mentioned, there are several different army officers with, in some ways, interestingly different backgrounds. They've all been Civil War veterans, but the guy who's the commanding officer, whose name is Carrington, is, was a logistics officer in the war and actually has no combat experience. He's horribly uh, matched to the place where he ends up, which is the most dangerous place on the continent at that time. Mm-hmm. His junior officers, by contrast, are all uh, grizzled combat veterans and I think are resentful of, of the fact that their commander doesn't have that combat experience. Um, I love Jim Bridger. Uh, I've always thought he was a great character. Um, it was fun for me to have somebody who was in the Revenant show up uh, 40 years later, the same character, and to play with his character then as a as a much older uh, man who's had this experience of being on the frontier for 40 years. Uh, I love the character of Frances Grummond. Mm-hmm. She's the wife, as you mentioned, of one of the junior officers, and she's the wife of the of the person who, in many ways, is is the biggest uh, 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 antagonist, I'd say, in in the story. That's very historically accurate. But a lot of people don't realize that officers uh, were allowed to take their wives with them, including to these incredibly remote frontier outposts. And there was a uh, this is something I learned in that job you mentioned as a as a teenage living history interpreter for the National Park Service. Uh, The U.S. Park Service in the in the 80s was not doing a very good job of interpreting Native American history, but they were just starting to figure out how to talk more about the role of, of women on, uh, on the Western frontier, at least, at least white women. And they did a pretty good job in that era of talking about the role of officers' wives. And so there's a lot that I learned through that experience uh, that comes, comes into the, the Ridgeline story. But it's not just the officers' wives. At the other end of the social scale, uh, in terms of women, you have the, the laundresses, laundresses yeah. the, the camp followers. Yeah. And so there's this whole culture of women inside of the walls mm-hmm. of this fort around which is swirling a war in you know the fall and winter of 1866. That's all before you get to the Native American characters. And it's really the Native American characters to me that are the, the driving heart of this story. Mm-hmm. I think that's been so fascinating just to have a sense of um, hearing the kind of interior monologues, the characters that you give them that seem very plausible, given this historical context that we we can know about to a certain degree, you know, from historical record. But then to imagine what was that like, given people have mm-hmm. different personalities and given their stations in life before they got there, or people who've had this treaty and now people are coming through their land. And I mean, it's just fascinating to, to play with that. And we'll get more to that. But I want to ask about one other character, too, that we haven't um, mentioned yet, which is a character you named Moon. Um, who is in the story transgender. Moon plays um, somewhat of a critical role in the story. So I wanted to, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about Moon, their importance sure. to the story, and, and why you included them in the storyline. Well, I want to come back to, to Crazy Horse and, and Red Cloud as well, mm-hmm. uh, who, as I said, I think Crazy Horse is, is, is to me, the, the beating heart of, of this book. But as you mentioned, there, I was very surprised to learn in doing the historical research on this 
book that one of the important parts of this story is on the day before the battle, the Lakota herd, and this, this is all uh, very well historically documented uh, by a guy named George Bird Grinnell, who I actually mm. wrote another book about. Right. George Bird Grinnell was a, uh, a, a conservationist and ethnologist in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And in the early 20th century, he went out to uh, Wyoming and Montana to study the Cheyenne uh, uh, tribe. And he met a person who had been involved personally in the, the, the Fetterman fight that, is, that my book is about. And he went out and toured the battlefield with this Cheyenne warrior who'd been a part of the battle. And in, nine, I think, 1915, if I'm, if I'm right about the year that this interview took place, uh, Grinnell walks around the battlefield with the Cheyenne warrior who tells about uh, what he called a, a person who was half man, half woman. Uh, the Lakota word was winkte. And this, this transgender uh, Lakota person had prophesied what was going to happen in this battle in helping them to pick the location for the ambush that they set. And Grinnell writes this account of this quote unquote half man, half woman, his uh, way of describing this person in this 1915 uh, book about the Cheyenne. So there's pretty good documentation for this. The person, the transgender person's name is not, uh, I, I'm not aware of there being any record of that. So the name Moon was something that I invented in the book for that character. But the character, the person, uh, the person uh, uh, is an actual person from history. I mean, we know so much from other ethnologists from the time and anthropologists that having individuals who are, and I don't know if non-binary is a better descriptor now than transgender, depending on the situation, but so many of these people they would call two-spirit or whatever that are that are right. somewhere between male and female in terms of uh, a gender role, but then they occupy often a place um, where there's a category already existing culturally for which this is, is totally normal and accepted, and it's often associated with having sort of, I think, maybe some special connections to healing, wisdom, spiritual power, something like that. So it, it just seems like it is one of those wonderful aspects of understanding that, you know, not every culture divides up the world into two gender categories. And it's it's nice to see that there was a historical, you, you know, um, oral tradition information that you were able to draw on for that character. I thought it was very interesting mm -hmm. as, a, as a character and as a cultural attribute as well. I thought from the research that I did, the way that the Lakota uh, viewed Winkte was very interesting. And, and, uh, and I love the open-mindedness of it, seeing uh, those people as having uh, the wisdom of both men and, and women, women, right? And yeah. therefore having don't a we all wish place. we sort of had that oh sometime, gosh, yeah. right? I know because we can't even understand each other half <laughs> the time. I know. Anyway, that's and a whole other podcast. Having this, having this revered place in the tribe right. as as advisors about all sorts of things, including personal relationship relationships, but also, uh, for example, about war. And it was from the research that I did, uh, the tribe would have never undertaken a massive battle like this 
without consulting uh, this Winkte person because of the belief that they had this wisdom of this, this, this extra special wisdom. I just thought it was a very uh, interesting and, and in some ways a beautiful way of, of, of looking at that. Yeah, and that's Michael, where the the name of the battle came from, isn't it? Um, the hundred in the hand. Yeah, exactly. the The prophecy that this that this Wing Te has is he, he uh, the the person comes back from the battlefield after surveying it, and they uh, they convey that they had a hundred uh, dead soldiers in in their hand. And uh, and so to the Lakota, the battle was was is is known as the Battle of the Hundred in the Hand. Yeah, yeah. that turns out to be pretty close to uh, to what happens without giving away too much. Right, right. Wow. Well, you you know, and it's I love that part of it, and um, and and the characters uh, that you really talked about with um, Crazy Horse and Red Cloud and, and, you know, just kind of going back to that diversity, that idea, idea of diversity, you know, the, the Cheyenne and the um, Lakota and the Arapaho, of course, all spoke different languages as well. And so kind of right. coming together as this huge military presence with, with different languages being spoken within the um, indigenous you know, warriors was pretty amazing as well. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that makes this battle so fascinating to me and that gives the opportunity for uh, showing the, the greatness of both Crazy Horse and Red Cloud is the, the Fetterman fight for the Lakota was a triumph of diplomacy. It was a triumph of strategy and it was a triumph of tactics. Mm. And Red Cloud was responsible for two of those pieces. He was responsible, first of all, for the triumph of diplomacy, because as you say, what he did that, uh, that completely took the U.S. Army by surprise is he created this coalition of tribes, uh, especially the Lakota, the Cheyenne, and the Arapaho. But he even reached out to their, their, their historical enemies, the Crow, demonstrating how um, unconventional his thinking was and probably uh, ex- helping to explain why it was it came as such as a shock to the to the US army but strategically then red cloud had figured out that the last thing that the lakota wanted to do is to fight the US army where it was strong right and where it was strong was at this huge fort that they had built in the middle of the powder river valley if the if the Native Americans had fought them at the fort, all of the advantages would have been with the army. Red Cloud figures out that they need to somehow get the army away from the fort. That was the strategy, uh, and it was a it was the right strategy. the 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 brilliance of the tactics, though, was somebody getting them away from the fort, and that was what that was what Crazy Horse did. Mm. And to be to work with uh, other decoys as Crazy Horse did to lure the army away from the fort in mass mm-hmm. uh, and get them to this carefully selected battlefield where the advantages were with the, the tribes was an incredible feat of just tactical military prowess. And that was crazy horse. And so all these three things, yeah. uh, you know, had to come together and everybody had to execute perfectly 
And it's one of the things that I think makes this such an interesting historical uh, event. Yeah. And I, it is amazing. And I I think you, you honor, you honor all of that. I, I loved how you just explained all that because I mean, one thing is to have that incredible precision and tactics. You have to know that landscape, like nobody's business. I mean, yeah. only a few people can really have that brilliance and that mm-hmm. not deep knowledge. But then to keep all the tribes together in, in a coalition, like that's a yeah. whole other skill, you know, to have mm-hmm. Red Cloud be able to do that. It's It was an amazing thing to be able to have come together, you know. Well, yeah. what, the, what the first part of the book is about, uh, really from the arrival of the army, uh, well, I start the book with Crazy Horse and his mm. brother and friend hunting in the Powder River Valley before the army arrives, because I wanted to show what it looked like to them before the arrival of, of the army. But then very early in the book, the this invading force uh, kind of, you know, uh, drives up or ride, rides up the, the Powder River Valley and Crazy Horse realizes right away the significance of this, not only because the, the, the party that comes up the, the Powder River Valley is enormous, including a herd of a thousand cattle to, you know, they think feed them through the winter, but also because the army brings the women and children. Women and children, that's the real, it's so different. They, they realize they're here to stay. This is different. They realize they are, they are coming to stay. They're digging and in. Yeah. It's, it's, that, it's that awareness, I, I think, that alerts crazy horse and red cloud to the seriousness of the threat to their traditional lives and, and culture. And I think that really mobilizes them in such a fierce way uh, against, against the army. Yeah. And I loved how you described that in the book, because you really talk about how um, crazy horse goes out and, and sees this beautiful landscape. And then of course that landscape is just trodden over and under by all these cattle and the the lumber that they need to sustain themselves and to keep themselves right all the trees growing. coming down and that must yeah. have just been a shocking sight. So, yeah. so I think you you really um, give a good sense of that that loss. Good. Yeah. Well, I think the scale of it must have been. Oh, I, I mean, can't even imagine. Look, one of the fun things about a novel, and I've written both fiction and nonfiction, and I love both for different reasons. And I think even when you write when you write nonfiction, you want to write it in a way that still is interesting and engaging. Well, that's what I loved about the book about Grinnell, because that was yeah. nonfiction. Oh. But I felt like I really got this <laughs> sense of who he is and, and what it was like to be dealing with, you know, all these things vanishing. I mean, Grinnell, mm-hmm. I think, definitely thought like he went to go do ethnographies among the Blackfeet. And he already saw them as he saw himself as documenting a vanishing culture. And then you have the bison and then this huge effort to try to just right. get people to care um, and stop people from just overrunning all of this. Yeah. Amazing. So, I mean, hopefully even in nonfiction, you can bring that kind of interesting narrative to bear, but, but with fiction, you you have a huge opportunity, I think, to really dive in, not just to what happened, but to how did it feel? And one of the things I was going for in Ridgeline is how did it feel to Mm. crazy horse and the Lakota to be living in your home and have it invaded in this way. And then not only invaded, but, but transformed dramatically in an incredibly short period of time. And, you know, how enraging must that have been? And there's so many characters like that. I mean, you know, how did it feel to be 19-year-old Francis Grumman and, you know, be a, a, have been 
uh, raised wealthy in Tennessee, marry an army officer thinking you're going to go live in New York City. And six months later, find yourself in the middle of the Powder River Valley of Wyoming in a log fort in the middle of a war. You know, how did it feel to be, you mentioned Adolf Metzger, the, the, the bugler. He was a German immigrant. Uh, you know, what was it like for a, for a Bavarian to find himself in the middle of the Powder River Valley uh, fighting against uh, uh, a bunch of, of tribes that, uh, you know, I doubt he had any particular animus against before, uh, before coming west. So there's just all these kind of interesting questions like that that I think are really fun to play with in the in the context of a novel. Michael, we're going to take a quick station break um, before we follow up on on that thought. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Michael Punk about his new released book, Ridgeline, the story of the Fetterman fight. And... Um, Michael, to follow up before I, I turn back to Crystal's next question, there's so many times where it, it just seemed to me, as you just described, you have this German bugler, this this young woman who's come out after being, and, and just the absurdity, you know, the Civil War had just ended. There's just so, there's so many levels at which you people must have been thinking, really? Like, how did I get here? And why am I fighting? For, and right. and I, think, I think that's what I enjoyed about the different perspectives too, as we talked about with all the characters that you chose, is by having all those different vantage points, the characters could kind of be discussing things that helped us see how odd these situations, how, how momentous. And, and as you said, just in this 20-year period, how the, the West, it was just this crazy flood. Yeah, yeah, transformation. Transformed dramatically. Well, it is fun uh, to have those characters to work with. And I do love dialogue as a way of storytelling. And I thought there were great opportunities among these interesting characters to show them thinking about a lot of these things, uh, including, for example, you talked about, we talked about Jim Bridger and James Beckworth. I, I was amazed and thrilled to learn that one of the first things that happens when the U.S. Army begins, arrives at this place where they want to build the fort is the commanding officer sends, and this happened in real life, the commanding officer sends Jim Bridger and James Beckworth, these two legends in their own time, out to scout uh, and figure out where the tribes are. And for a period that was, you know, probably six weeks long, they are riding by themselves across the frontier and thinking about the conversations that they must have been having was just complete catnip to me as a writer because they'd known each other for 40 years. They lived these epic lives and they must have been talking about everything from, you know, people that they knew in their past, like, for example, people like Hugh Glass, the, the hero of The Revenant, that, who both of them knew in real life. Uh, they must have been talking about how much the West had changed. And I think they probably were talking about whether or not they were happy with the role that they had played in that and probably uh, having mixed feelings about that. I mean, they, because as you said, they saw the West transformed and the, 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 the very uh, open uh, West uh, settled by very few white people in the, in the 1820s looked very different already by the 1860s. And how did they feel about that? I think they must've had mixed feelings. 
Yeah, I, I bet they did. I'm sure they did. You know, to see that destruction that was happening right before their eyes, how could they not have uh, after experiencing their lives in this West that they knew um, being changed? So, so yeah, you know, it's great to be able to kind of put some words in their mouths as well and kind of, you know, better understand who these men were a little bit. So thanks you know, for doing that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Jim Bridger being... You know, in his own lifetime, he's a legend. The people are writing stories and he can't read himself, but people are just telling him this. I just, we know that's true, you know, and I just, I love that. I love having that, again, the absurdity, but the, the, like you said, the catnip for sort of imagining what those conversations must have been like. I mean, I'm sure they talked about having native wives, you know, because yeah, they yeah. both had many. Both, and that yeah. must have Both of them had married, uh, Bridger had married into the Shoshone tribe and Beckworth had married into the Crow tribe, which by the way, both of those tribes were historical enemies of the Lakota, which right. I'm sure made it much easier for Bridger and Beckworth to, to right. uh, rationalize scouting for the U.S. Army because right. the Lakota were traditional enemies of of the tribes with which they spent most of their lives. So it's just all very complicated and, and interesting. Yeah. To me. Messy in a good way. Yeah. 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 So another <laughs> aspect of the story, you know, you were kind of speaking about how uh, you were, it was lucky to have Jim Bridger and James Beckworth kind of come into the story at this time. Well, there's another character oh, yes. that kind of makes his way into the story as yeah. well, <laughs> which was probably um, catnip for you as well. Totally. Um, as, as you say, and this, this character is uh, kind of our hometown, mm. one of our hometown historical figures, and that's Nelson story. Nelson's story. Yeah. Yeah. So Nelson's, so Nelson's story. story is, a, is uh, again, I just couldn't believe. So to, to back up a little bit, uh, in the middle of this war that is literally being fought in the fall of 1866 in the Powder River Valley, the U.S. Army has a detachment of scouts out one day and they come up over a ridgeline and they look down below them and there are 20 cowboys herding a herd of a thousand Texas longhorns up the middle of the Powder River Valley. And this is the first time that a a cattle herd had ever been driven from Texas to Montana. And the leader of these cowboys is the guy that you're talking about, Nelson Story, who is in and of himself uh, worthy of of his own uh, books and novels. But Nelson Story had gone up and mined for gold, pan for gold in Montana and been moderately successful. He makes $30,000, which is a lot of money in 1856. But he wasn't very happy about being a miner, but he figures out that there could be a lot of money to be made in selling food to miners. So he takes his $30,000 to Texas, sewed the gold dust, sewed into the lining of his coat, and he acquires, uh, probably partially through purchasing and partially through finding uh, free-roaming Texas long Rustling, maybe. Yeah. Rustling, <laughs> uh, for example. And hires 19 cowboys, and they decide they're going to drive this cattle herd to Montana, and they do it. And if that story sounds familiar to some people, yeah. uh, if it sounds a bit like a, 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 my favorite book of all time called Lonesome Dove, <laughs> uh, it should sound familiar because Nelson's story, it turns out, was one of the real-life inspirations to Larry McMurtry for Lonesome Dove. And so one of the fun things that happened to me in the context of this book before, and of course, sadly, Larry McMurtry died a couple of months ago, 
but I was able to um, ask him to look at Ridgeline oh, wow. um, before he oh, died, nice. and he actually lent a a cover blurb to the to the book, which wow. uh, yeah. uh, I'm very proud of because I just um, uh, he is uh, a, a writing hero of mine, and that book specifically I think is a is a great book. And literally, Nelson's story shows up in the middle of this story. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was interesting to see him in there. And, and um, you know, he's a, a big-time figure here in Bozeman. He helped build sure. Bozeman. Um, yep. The building that we're sitting in right now, he owned for quite a, a long time. So... <laughs> I can't believe that. I yeah. saw your email about that. I think that's a fa- that's what a fascinating fact. Yeah. I see those timbers behind you and they make a little bit more sense. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. He's a he's a bit of a of a complicated figure as yeah, well. Very huh? complex, yeah, very yeah. complex. Very so, complex. You know, not like a many people in that era. There's a complicated past there. Yeah, we're for sure. So we were we you know, I was kinda glad to see him in there and um have him added to that story, uh rightly so, since he was part of it. So Yeah, yeah. Right. absolutely. Yeah. Um, just, just for the record, I did notice it seemed like a lot of your Irish characters were, were big drinkers and, you know, my people are from there, so I, it's probably not wrong. Um, but just, just, you know, <laughs> not to stereotype us or anything, uh, <laughs> but, um, but Chris well, for the record, I think, uh, it wasn't just the Irish uh, among the soldiers. It wasn't just the Irish who were big drinkers. I think no, that's true. I think if you were out there as a soldier, you were, there were, it's funny because at Fort Ellis out here, there, there were heavy drinkers, you know, there were the laundresses and, and we've done mm-hmm. some, um, we've had, uh, several archeologists dig up some of the areas and really look into. So it was really fun to talk about the, the fort and the class structure and everything in there and the officer's wives and all those different things. But you did have a segment that were really teetotalers mm-hmm. and didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So, so you do have some of that. I don't mm-hmm. think the Irish tended to be on the teetotaler Probably side. Probably not. <laughs> no, but that's okay. That's okay. But I wanted to, um, Crystal and I were really fascinated with the the narration itself. So mm-hmm. why don't you ask? Yeah, yeah. you know, so Michael, um, I read the book, but then I also listened to it. I love to listen to audio versions of the books. And so right. um, I did that. So did Nancy. And you had this book, narr- or, or the publishers had this book narrated by Tatanka Means, who is the son of Russell Means. Yes. And he's he's an award-winning yeah. actor, stand-up activist, comedian, um, yeah. activist. Um, he represents the Navajo, the Ogala Lakota, and the Omaha Nations. And so I love that you had this indigenous narrator telling this story. And, and was that your idea, or was it the publisher's idea? Or can you tell us a little bit about how that all came to be? It it was my idea, and the publisher, uh, to their credit, was extremely supportive of that. I, f- I felt like it, because Crazy Horse is, I mean, look, there's lots of different characters, lots of different perspectives, but if there's one that is the beating heart, it's Crazy Horse. And from that standpoint, I felt like it was very important for the primary narrator of this story to be an uh, Indigenous person. And I was thrilled when they, uh, when they found... Uh, Tatanka means to to take that task on, and I agree with you. I think he did a, a phenomenal job. There's a there's another uh, actress involved in this uh, as well. They they uh, picked a a female uh, actor to narrate the journal entries that I used to tell the story of Frances Grumman. Uh, her name is Amanda Stribling, and she also is 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 great. And so. 
like you, I thought that the audiobook ended up being really fun with the two of their skills brought to bear in, in doing it. Yeah, she has a real southern, mm. deep southern accent, Tennessee accent. So that was great. It brings to life yeah. that yeah. perspective that you were talking about and, yeah. and thinking of a 19 year old, genteel southern, you know, young lady out there. Yeah. You know, you could really kind of hear and feel it that way with her accent. It was mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, She's from the South. Yeah. Comes by it, uh, she comes by it honestly. But yeah. I thought that the degree of, of accent that she used was just perfect for the for the character of, of and Francis. I, I enjoyed not hearing a man try to do a woman's voice or a woman <laughs> trying to do a man's voice. So I think that was yeah. really to your credit. Uh, so Crystal had told me about the narration because I usually prefer to read a book. And this was really, this was was really very pleasant. Good. So I'm, I'm recommending that. Braiding Sweetgrass is another one. I yeah. always tell people that it's a beautiful book, but you really should get the audio book sometimes. And that's a good one, too. Yeah. Um, but at, at Extreme History, we're always talking about the power of places when we're talking about history, where events happened, where people were. Um, as an archaeologist myself, that power of place and the, the tangible aspects of being in a place, um, sitting in it, documenting it, and then even if we're just doing small um, test excavations and windows into it, there's um, there's that that groundedness, that tactile aspect, just something else that connects you. So um, we were interested about, um, in writing this book, did you travel to places um, where you're writing about the events? Do you do that beforehand? Do you do that um, in the middle of the story? And if you spent time at um, Fort Kearney uh, and on location where the battle happened, um, tell us a little bit about that. I did. Um so for me, getting the history right is incredibly important. Obviously, if I'm writing nonfiction, but even I think writers of historical fiction have a huge obligation to, to get the history right. And so, and, and beyond wanting to get it right, it, to me, it's also just part of the fun. And, and I had been to Fort Phil Kearney uh, for the first time, I guess, about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. I'd been up and down that valley uh, dozens of times growing up in, in Wyoming and, and living in, in Montana. Now my parents live down in Torrington, Wyoming, not far from Fort Laramie. And so just driving to see my parents, I drive through that Powder River Valley. So I'd been through the valley a lot and, and visited the fort, the site of the fort and the site of the battlefield for the first time, as I said, 10 or 12 years ago with my, my daughter, Sophie. And then uh, when, after I decided to, to write the book, of course, went back there and kind of crawled over the whole place uh, at a whole different level, stayed there for a couple of days, went out with a couple of buddies of mine and who also are big history fanatics. And the three of us really just crawled over the whole place, uh, having done a lot of reading at that point and really tried to imagine a lot of the things that history leaves pretty unclear just in terms of where particular things happened. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to figure that out. The battlefield is beautiful and huge. If you, if you haven't visited there, I really encourage people to go visit it. It's a Wyoming state historical uh, site, both the fort oh, and the battlefield. Trip, yeah. And they're very well done. Nice. Yeah. About 100 miles south, almost due south, a little bighorn uh, battlefield site. So you can do them both, uh, on the same trip and they're, and they're both wonderful in different ways. But 
you know, I, I did spend a lot of time on the ground there trying to get a feel. And then just beyond that, I, I, I'm lucky enough to live in Montana and we're the last house for 60,000 acres. And I really spend a lot, uh, I, I make it a point to be on a long hike in nature every day. And that uh, opportunity to, to be in nature every day and see, uh, have that kind of intimate relationship with a, with a physical place, see it evolve through the course of seasons, I just thought was really critical to even coming close to writing, for example, about uh, about men like Jim Bridger and James Beckworth, right. or let alone the Native American uh, characters whose whole uh, economy and culture is built around nature. And so that opportunity to be outdoors every day was really important to this story. Yeah. I, I think, you know, being there, the certain smells, the light, the different times of year when different plants are greening up and then going I mean it it makes such a difference I feel like to to be in that landscape and get a sense of what it feels like where the winds tend to come from when it's certain type of weather approaching or I mean yeah I very very much relate to that and I think um I think that definitely comes through um Michael in this book which is which is lovely especially for those of us who are also from this part of the world to to kind of feel that recognition um the other thing I wanted to ask you about is that you made a decision to tell the story not only as historical fiction, but your characters are all really narrating their lives. And so it's your voice then th- through them. You know, you're giving life to that narration. And and some of these characters are, you know, women and some are Native. They're Indigenous and they're a completely different cultural background. And we've seen in some cases, authors have um, experienced a backlash for that, right? It makes some people uncomfortable. What gives somebody who is um, not right. of that, right? That you're not non-binary or you're not, you know, Native or Latinx or whatever, you know, to speak. Um, so there can be that um, that reaction. Yeah. I have to say I think there's also the upside of um, – building an incredible amount of empathy if it's if it's done well. So you mention um, when you're talking about writing from the perspective of a culture that's not your own, you talked about nine different people who helped you navigate um, this, yep. including um, someone who's very close to us, Shane Doyle, who we admire yeah. tremendously, mm-hmm. who's um, a friend, a colleague, and a, a founding member of the Extreme History Project board, but he's also a member of the Crow tribe and lives here in Bozeman. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear about um, why you chose to, to do that and to, to jump in, in there. And um, yeah, I think sure. you do it well, but why and then your process for that? So it's something that I gave a huge amount of thought to before writing it the way that I did. And choosing to write it from multiple perspectives is based very much on my view going back to, as I said, when I was working for the National Park Service in the 1980s and talking to tourists about, uh, you know, the Park Service version of Western history. And one of the things I began to realize even then is that we have told Western American history from a very narrow set 
of perspectives for a long time. And to me, uh, that has been, uh, it's been wrong to leave out the perspectives that we've left out, whether it's women or, uh, or the tribes uh, or other characters that, we, that I have talked about in the course of, of the book today. And so I made the decision that for, the, for this story in particular, which as a matter of historical fact, has all of these representatives from, from different perspectives, I made the decision that I wanted to tell the story in an inclusive way that, that, that included all of those uh, peoples and perspectives. Now, having made that decision, as you say, there's, it's a huge responsibility to, to try and tell uh, a story from a perspective that, that you don't have on the basis of your personal experience. And so the best I can do, having made that decision, is to, to dig into the history as much as I possibly can, uh, to, to learn as much as I possibly can. And then having written it, to take the first draft, as I did, to as many, to as, to as diverse of a group as I possibly can, to read it and give me feedback people that I could go to and ask them to, to look at it. And by the way, any of the mistakes that are still there are all mine. But I can tell you that on the basis of having people like Shane and others read the book, I got a lot of great feedback. Uh, you know, I also had, you know, my I wrote about women characters, because as you point out, and I wrote uh, Francis Grumman through first-person journal entries that I made up. I'm not a woman, uh, but I did have the uh, and daughter uh, parts of the book and give me feedback from their perspective about what was what worked, what didn't work, what felt real, what didn't feel real, and I changed on the basis of those suggestions as well. So. My view at the end of the day is we live in an era right now in which we are all challenged to do better at understanding other people. And the more empathy that we can seek to have and have for people who aren't like us, the better. And I think if we are too prescriptive in saying that certain people can only write about the exact type of person that they are, in my case, you know, a white guy, uh, I think that would limit my ability to try and be more empathetic as a writer. Yeah, and we don't need so, more white guy histories. So, so kudos so, to you, right? As you said, we already kind of have a lot of that perspective. So I, I think that process of just seeking out the empathy, but then opening yourself up to hearing, you know, letting other people give you feedback before that you can incorporate before you say, okay, I think this is conveying what it needs to convey. I'm, I'm sure... That's a process that a lot of authors, you know, could come to feel comfortable with just to not let it all spring out of your head, but to have somebody who's related to the story. I mean, if you have a historical diary, great. But if you don't, there are descendants. There are other relevant right. people out there who can be well, guides. And look, I don't know if this is the, the right way or the wrong way to write a story. Mm. Uh, I feel like for this story, given the cast that it the, the cast that it had the diversity of the cast that it had i i felt like this was the right way for me to write this story and and then at a certain point all you can do is write it 
do your best and put it out there. And by the way, I have no doubt I've, uh, that I'll learn a lot of things from uh, comments and feedback that I'll get. And I'll incorporate that into the next one that I write. And, and hopefully each one kind of pushes the, the ball forward a little bit. If this helps to make people curious about this story, I put a lot of uh, historic sources in the back of my book for people to go look up on their own. If, if I make people curious about this in a way that they otherwise hadn't been before, I feel pretty good about that. And, uh, and you know, if I've made mistakes, then uh, in the next one, hopefully I'll be better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, here's, here's to curiosity. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the best outcome. We're going to take another quick station break. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Michael Punk about his newly released book, Ridgeline, A Story of the Fetterman Fight. So, Michael, I love that historic notes at the back and the further reading, and I'm definitely going to look into some of those books. I think there's a new um, biography of Jim Bridger that I definitely want to check out. I haven't read it yet. I'm di- I'm dying to to read it. I got to say, it's on my short my short stack. Yeah, awesome. yeah, definitely. it was. We Me were too. due for a new one. I yeah, think the old one sure. is is pretty dated. Yeah, yeah. So in that, but in that, I love what you did with it as well because you kind of gave updates on all the characters, the characters who didn't die in the fight anyway, but um, some of the people who made it out, you did give updates on their lives. And I loved how you did that. And of course, it's very tragic to hear about the end of the life of Crazy Horse and Red Cloud. Um, and But there is kind of a, a soap opera story that I wanted you to um, talk a little <laughs> I think bit I about. That's where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us that one. You know, we our, our podcast is called The Dirt on the Past. Yeah, so. we, yeah. Need, we need a little we need bit of that. Dirt. Yeah, yeah. Is well, there a little well, bit of romance here? Very very bring in. So, uh, so there, uh, there are two officers that are uh, important to this, uh, to this story. Uh, Colonel Carrington is the commanding officer of the fort. He's married to a woman uh, in my story called named Margaret Carrington. Uh, and then there's, as I mentioned, kind of the villain of the story, Lieutenant Grummond, who is married to Francis Grummond, who is kind of the heroine of the, the story and, and uh, a character that I devote a lot of, of, of time and attention to. Uh, without uh, revealing too much, uh, I will uh, reveal that uh, uh that Frances Grummond has uh, has another husband later on in her life. I won't. You, you can. <gasps> okay. Okay. We're gonna but, leave uh, the listeners on the edge my, of their seats. My, uh, I'll, uh, I'll. I won't fill in the details there, but uh, later on in her life, she ends up marrying Colonel Carrington after Colonel Carrington's first wife Margaret dies, and they Carrington and and Grummond strike up a correspondence and uh they then become married so it is it is a little curious as to what she and carrington by the way is much much older than than grummond uh so i don't know if uh if there was some spark that was uh evident in uh, in their time behind the walls of, of fort phil carney uh or whether uh, or, or not but it's mm-hmm. it's it's fun to postulate about and there, there's your dirt on history. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, nice. you know, I think, Michael, that, you know, they shared such a unique experience, the two of them, you know. Sure. And so I feel like that's probably eventually what brought them together is that shared experience because there was probably not a lot of people who had gone through that that were still living and that, you know, it, it was very, I'm sure it was 
you know, traumatic and, and, um, and so that probably brought them together to a certain degree. I don't know. I, you know, that's yeah. me pondering, wondering, but well, that's, uh, that doesn't seem crazy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so Michael, you talk a lot about, um, ridgelines in the book and this is the title of the book. Um, we can't help wondering, you know, sort of the, the deeper meanings and, and perhaps metaphorical meanings that this has for you in discussing ridgelines, you know, such an important aspect of Western landscapes. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, of course, there's the ridgeline in the book, which is the fateful ridgeline that Crazy Horse uh, entices the U.S. Army to cross to their demise. So there's that very literal uh, significance. But as I was, before I had picked a title for the book, I was out on a hike one day uh, thinking about the character of Jim Bridger and walking up uh, a very steep slope to this ridgeline that I walk up to the top of almost every day uh, near my house. And uh, in thinking about a metaphor for, for Bridger and, and how to introduce him in the opening scene, and I introduce him coming up to the top of a ridgeline, just the, the metaphorical significance of ridgelines as a point of demarcation between what we know and what we don't know mm. was very striking to me. And for people who've hiked in the West, as it, it sounds like you guys have a lot, there is that moment of expectation mm -hmm. as you work your way up a big uh, uh, mountain and you come up to the top and you don't know what you're going to see uh, coming over the top. And I think we we face that moment in our lives at, at many junctures as, as, a, as a metaphor. And I love that idea. And also in this book, all of the characters in one way or other are grappling with very significant changes in their lives and metaphorically coming up to these to these ridgelines where they don't know what what lies beyond and so i i just love playing with that in the context of all the characters hmm. that's great that is great thank you yeah. for that answer um and we have to ask do you think there will be any plans to make ridgeline into a movie well i hope so we we've been lucky enough already to option it to anonymous content which is the same company that, that produced the revenant so they're doing a lot of work on it right now uh, I will tell you that the the Hollywood process, in my relatively limited experience, is can be a, a long and winding road. So <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not holding my breath and waiting for it, but I but I can't help but hope but hope for it for sure. Okay. I want to know I who's going to so. play James Beckworth, yeah, <laughs> Jim Bridger, <laughs> and then I I you know there's going to be so many interesting characters to, yeah. to pull into this, and and it won't be a, a dances with wolves, but it'll have that big sweep of yeah. that, which would be nice but with a much more contemporary sensibility <laughs> <Right>. of <laughs> western history shall we say i'll stop uh, talking sure. you go yeah. ahead <laughs> well i hope to see it in movie form i think it would be an amazing movie or or something other something else sure scripted yeah. uh television is uh yeah. would be an interesting way to tell the story as well so True. no me too i think yeah. that uh i think that uh that there's it's a I, well. I'm. I historically, I think it's a great story with a great cast, and I think it would be fun to. I hope people read it as, as a book, but uh, of course, I would love to play with it in the, in that format as well. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, a Netflix series could be great. It would. Awesome. It would be perfect. Yeah. 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 You know, so this is our last uh, question, Michael, but it's a it's always our most important question. And, you know, extreme history is all about making history relevant and making it um, something that we can use today. And so why do you think this book is important today? Why do you think it's important to publish this book now? Well, uh, a couple of different things, if you'll allow me two answers. Uh, first and foremost, I think we're at a important moment of reckoning in our country about race. And there's been appropriately a lot of discussion uh, over the last uh, year in particular uh, about the history of, of, of Blacks in America. Uh, there's been less discussion over the last year about the, the history of, of, uh, of Native Americans. Yeah. And I hope in a, in a small way anyway, that this novel helps to illuminate some of that, of that history. And uh, and is can be part of that of that reckoning that we're that we're engaged in right now. Uh, in a in a more in a slightly more abstract way, I think uh, this is an important moment in our national history in thinking about leadership and the consequences of leadership and the responsibility of people around leaders. And this is also a story about about leadership and. Uh, this is not a political book. It's not meant to be a political book, but I think that there are lessons in this that are relevant to our contemporary politics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Michael, we could probably keep talking with you all day, but our, our time is up now. And we're so grateful that you were able to set aside some some time to talk with us about Ridgeline. And we really encourage all of our listeners to go out and get a copy at your local bookstore. Um, I know you work at Amazon. I'm not going to say they could also get it there, but I guess they could. <laughs> um, your other books include Last Stand, George Bird Grinnell, The Battle to Save the Buffalo, and The Birth of the New West, Fire and Brimstone, The North Butte Mining Disaster of 1917, and of course, The Revenant. Michael, are you on social media at all? I am. My kids don't think I'm very good at it. <laughs> Uh, none of our kids. none of our kids think yeah. we're good. And, and actually, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> You're pretty I good, though, on, My Twitter, my Twitter handle is uh, M Punk. That's uh, M P U N K E. And my handle on uh, Instagram is M W Punk at M W Punk. Okay. Okay. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being here with us today. Uh, Yeah, we really enjoyed this. Love the conversation. I really appreciate your interest in the book. So thanks and uh, uh, excited about your podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, thanks, Michael. And and thanks, everyone out there um, for listening to us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past. So make sure to find that and like it. We put links to all of our podcast episodes up there, but we also include links to articles, books, and everything that we discuss on the podcast. Thanks again, Michael, and thanks to all of you out there listening, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The the Dirt dirt on the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy, and original music by Lawson Alegria.
You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>